Inclusivity is important. How else can we learn, grow and develop? If we were all the same, the world would be a very dull place. Alpacas come in 22 colours and hundreds of shades and they are naturally inclusive. Embrace your inner alpaca. Be more inclusive. And that profound thought is from the EDI training company Pearl Catchers, who have been training Essex Police. This week, we've published a major new report, The Urgent Need to Teach the Police About Free Speech, and we'll be turning to that shortly. How are you doing, Tom? Uh, ben, I'm doing very well, and I thoroughly enjoyed well, I still can't tell the difference between an alpaca and a llama, to be brutally honest. But uh, what have I been doing this week? I've been doing a bit of thinking. We talked last week a little bit about uh, the art of the insult in passing. And that really struck a chord with me. I think the insult is a great British institution. Um, when you think of people in uh, in our country who've, who've insulted well, you think of people like Oscar Wilde, Churchill, uh, Noel Coward. Uh, I love that. I love that Laurence Olivier insult when um, <laughs> when I think it was Dustin Hoffman was was he was either running around or he was fasting for a long period of time. And Laurence Olivier looked at him and said, why? Why are you doing this? He said, well, I've got to do I'm playing this role. I'm doing this in the next play. I've, I've got. And uh, Olivier, said, have you have you ever considered acting? Uh, which I think is uh, it's such a well-known little anecdote, but uh, it's also such a cutting insult. <laughs> and then I think to myself, well, Florence Olivier, one of the greatest actors of our age, would he even be allowed to perform nowadays? Would he would he get the roles? And you know what a, what a loss that would be if we if he if he if he hadn't or if he didn't. So that that's what I was thinking about over the week. What about you, Ben? What's what's been on your mind? Well, we've been celebrating a person who became pregnant day in my household over the weekend, which is the festival formerly known as Mother's Day, because we have, of course, been conforming to Oxfam's new language guide, which we'll uh, also be returning to later on. Very good. M Mother's Day. Now, I'm not even allowed to say Mother's Day. It's Mothering Sunday for me, Ben, every time. Mother's Day is is it, it is too much for me. That's too much for me, let alone person who became pregnant. <laughs> you're, you're sure Oxfam can't tempt you with that, Tom? It no, plays off the tongue, doesn't it? I, <laughs> it really does, you know? Happy PWBPD day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, Oxfam, of course, is just it's just the latest institution to be offering um, guidance of, of one sort or another about how their employees or volunteers or whatever um, mm. can speak and, and what language we can we can use. Mm. Um, and, and that really brings us on to our first topic, uh, which is the the report that I uh, I mentioned at, at the top of the episode. Yeah. Um, and what the Free Speech Union has done, our colleague Carrie Clark has has done a fantastic piece of research looking at every police force in England and Wales. And we've sent off, uh, how many freedom of information requests was it, Tom? Well, I mean, it was 32, I think, 32 police forces across England and Wales. We sent a freedom of information request in. Um, and what we discovered was quite astonishing, really. Uh, 25 of the 32 were providing no training on freedom of speech, or they were providing sort of half-baked training, uh, training that was essentially pretty inadequate. Uh, the remaining police forces didn't answer the question. Um, but it's actually being reported in the Times, which is fantastic. Uh, so do look out for that article. But just a couple of examples, Essex Police, 
they were i think is that the one that we started with the quote with uh, yeah, earlier it is. on yeah then. from yeah. from pearl catches the from, edi training firm so uh, pearl catches pearl. was the firm and yeah. Essex Police were the recipients, and they they got thirty, nearly thirty nine thousand hours of police time on EDI training, costing uh, pearl catchers are a snip at one hundred ninety three thousand pounds to get the uh, to get the training. And uh, Derbyshire Police, another they they included in their training uh, the genderbred person who is a there's a diagram. I think quite a few folks listening may well have come across the genderbred person. Uh, you you may not have been. I I, uh, I was unlucky enough once to to get into some training by mistake when I was still in in when I was still in the city, and uh, I couldn't get it right. So the genderbred person is meant to be a representative of sort of sex gender and uh and and something else anyhow i didn't couldn't get it right every time someone said oh what did you learn i said oh it's the gingerbread man diagram i got that wrong oh no not the gingerbread man diagram it's the gingerbread person diagram no that's not right it's a genderbred man and i couldn't get it right it was rather embarrassing so i failed my training then it's not it's not the kind of training we're likely to have at the free speech union i think (laughs) I would fail it. I would fail. But Derbyshire police have had it. Uh, So it's not just that the police are wasting their their money. It's that they've actually been. Our money, Tom. Our money. Our money. Yes, indeed. They've been captured. They've been captured by an ideology. And, uh, you know, we're we're paying the price. We're paying the price in all sorts of ways, not just in the tax bill. But uh, folks are being arrested. Uh, I mean, we were talking earlier about Jennifer Swain. She was arrested for putting yeah. up stickers. And, and those stickers had slogans like no men in women's prisons. And, and officers came round and actually, like, what, what, what happened, Ben? You know more of the detail of what yeah, happened so, here than I do. So, do, yeah, Dr. Jennifer Swain, um, she put up these stickers and they had slogans on them saying things like no men in women's prisons. Um, and as a result of that, officers raided her home. Uh, mm. She was bundled into a police van, held for 12 hours in police custody. And this is the detail I find most sinister of all, that when the police were in her home, they uh, they found an academic book, a collection of essays, and they seized that as though it were contraband of some sort. Um, and mm. so uh, this just goes to show, I mean, there is a point about waste of taxpayers' money. There is a point about the huge amount of police time that's being wasted when however many burglaries and all the rest of it um, are not being dealt with or investigated. But the effect of all of this EDI training that that goes far beyond what the law actually says about yeah. hate crimes, about trans issues and all the rest of it. So it goes far beyond the law. And the effect yeah. of that um, is to silence free speech and to get into a situation where the police are, are effectively being trained to arrest people like Dr. Jennifer Swain for what putting up stickers. And what they're reading. I mean, not that, yeah. not that they knew at the time that they were going to find that. But did they, I mean, am I right, Ben, as well, that the police said they would do it all over again? They did. Yeah. Uh, so the, the conclusion to this saga was that the CPS, uh, I laughed the case out, it, it seems, and said, well, no, we're not going to prosecute. She's not. She's not broken the law. So that that's mm. a, a, a encouraging outbreak of of common sense at the Crown Prosecution Service. So that's the the good news. Um, but when the police conveyed this decision to her, uh, to Dr. Swain, they said effectively, "Well, you know, you better butt your ideas up and don't do this mm. again." Um, and 
if you do wow. more or less exactly the same thing is it, it, going to happen to you. Um, yeah. So we're in yeah. a real mess. Please things in a real mess, like we were saying last week with uh, NCHIs. Well, but that's you know, the good if news. I want that... to get, you know, my, my if I'm burgled, Ben, um, and I was burgled. Last time I've been very, very fortunate, touch wood, I've been burgled once, and that was back in 1998. And I got woken up by the police not because they were banging down the door but because i was a fairly lazy first year um uh worker in the city and i was sleeping in on a sunday but they knocked on the door they were there on a sunday yeah. and were asking how we were doing there was a man there was a woman uh we we got asked um what had we lost and given numbers to ring and, and it was really good follow-up I yeah. don't think that would happen. I don't think that is happening anymore. No. And and yet what it's been replaced with is this, uh, yeah, it's 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 like the Harry Miller case all over again, isn't it? It's a kind of thought police. Uh, I, I think if, uh, if if the burglar misgendered you on their, their way out, mm. uh, then the police might turn up quite promptly. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it, policing is just in a terrible mess. But the good news, uh, I was just going to say a minute ago, is that there is now a political pushback against this. The Home Secretary, last week we were talking about the non-crime hate incident regime that the Free Speech Union has been fighting back against. The Home Secretary has issued the new guidance that we spoke about. Um, and also, in this case, she's made it quite clear that the uh, the expectation on the police uh, is to protect, or at least not to interfere with, people's right to free expression. People have the right to their views whatever they may be about the yeah. trans debate or equality issues or whatever um so that's that's really welcome but it takes a lot of work and there's a big backlog isn't there I, in the sense that if free speech isn't hasn't been taught to a whole well, i don't know what a generation of police officers is is it a year is it five years however long but say over the last six years they've all gone through this training of imbalance with free speech being sort of on on the on the lower end of priorities and edi being on the higher there's a lot of retraining so it's, and, and as we're trying to get more officers on the streets anyway and into the into the police um forces around the country we've got to train the new ones and train the current ones and then meanwhile the older ones are retiring because of their their, their pensions are too valuable so yeah we've got a real difficult um situation of getting making sure that uh our police forces understand this stuff Trevor Phillips had an interesting um, article. He he was the former chair of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. And he was writing in the Times about the, I think it was the Times of Telegraph, I can't remember now, about the problem of uh, the over 50s um, mm. retiring and, and this this political struggle to get them back into work. And he said, well, mm. the money and the, the pensions and so on, that's part of it. But actually, if you're 55, there's not really very much about the modern workplace that's terribly appealing. Mm. And if you're, I mean, you don't want to overgeneralize, but if you're working with, um, younger colleagues who are intolerant of dissent, and of course that's not universally the case, but nonetheless, mm. if that's if that's what your working experience for the last five, six, seven years has been, it's really difficult to tempt somebody like that back in back into work. Um, and and workplaces in, in modern Britain um, are, are not fun-filled environments. Tom, it seems to me from, no, from the cases we we deal with. Um, well, they don't need the hassle, as you say. By that stage, the pension is pretty valuable. They're getting into the age where they can start to draw it down or, or rely maybe on savings for a couple of years. Um, interesting. I mean, we're not here to talk about the budget, but very interesting what's happened with uh, trying to get folks back into work. But if it's only for a year or so before a Labour government gets in, then that will that will have. I don't know. It, it won't. It will certainly water down the effect, I suspect. 
but uh, yeah they're not happy places to be and, and you've got sort of the the new the newer members of these uh, whether it's a workplace or a police force sort of barracking the older members who are who, who whereas normally you know they've got good experience they're worth listening to they know what they're talking about they've done policing they've been there done that but that doesn't count anymore in, in quite the reverse it's quite the reverse they need to be taught by the younger police officers or the new police officers who've been through all of this training and this is the problem in, in publishing i think is, is probably the single best example um of mm. of the the sort of march through the institutions of um younger employees bending a company or an institution to to their particular views um and the intolerance of, of dissent that in that enforces it but in the police at least um we have had the good news last week about the nchis yeah. and the, the the new guidance that the home secretary has put before parliament so things are changing and that's one of the things we want to do in this podcast is try and give uh, some crumbs of comfort and some positive news about what is actually being accomplished by the free speech union to to push yeah. back against yeah. this uh, intolerant censorship so i think that's something we we can provide um but in terms of the police i you know how's it happened tom how have we gone from uh the sweeney and and gene hunt to alpacas and and genderbred people i mean it, it it's incredible it really is. And and part of our rise, those you're right, the, the, the sort of the two sides of the coin. First of all, I think this report shines a light on it. Uh, and that light has needed to be shined uh, and uh, is a long has been a long time coming. And then that wakes everyone up to goodness me. This is this is what's happening. And I think our conclusion uh, from the report to quote is to address the free speech crisis in British policing, the government should make sure that police training is rebalanced with less time devoted to EDI, more time devoted to Article 10, freedom of expression. So yeah, we've shined a light on it. And now we've said these are the practical steps that need to be taken. Uh, and as you say, the NCHI was a fantastic big uh, practical step that we talked about last week, the new code that, that the Home Secretary is putting, putting through. Well, well, there's good guidance and bad. And from some good guidance, we can move on to some bad guidance and the story about Oxfam that I referred to a moment ago. Indeed, indeed. So Oxfam last mm. week tweeted, um, we are proud of our commitment to using language that includes everyone and respects the ways people want to be referred to. When we include everyone, we can overcome poverty. And they they published this guide. It's 92 pages long, so I've not read the full thing and I would not recommend that you do either. It sounds an utterly dreary document. But it says, for instance, people who become pregnant should be used instead of referring to expectant mothers and that words referring to the elderly or youth should also be avoided. For some reason, it says the word or the phrase field trip is is problematic in some way. I think that well. might be a reference to fields on plantations or something, like sugar fields or I don't know. But yeah, fields have for some strange reason they've been cancelled no more field trips and then it <laughs> says we recognize that this guide has its origin in english the language of a colonizing nation so merely by writing this guide in the english language they consider themselves to have done something problematic and they mm. say then we acknowledge the anglo supremacy of the sector as part of its coloniality so what do you make of that tom well i i i, I I wonder whether I'm surprised. Uh, I know that this is an area where we've 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 seen the charitable sector in particular go further and further into into woke territory. But it's just the absurdity of the conclusion 
that when we include everyone, we can overcome poverty. Poverty is a very real situation for people. Uh, there's absolute poverty, which is when you're looking for your next meal. And there's relative poverty. Now, relative poverty is going to be with us forever. There will always be people who have more uh, people at the top and there'll be always going to be people who have less. Um, whichever way you cut it, you know, to get rid of relative po poverty, you, we have to become a dystopian society. We would love to get rid of absolute poverty, but the, the priority is not diversity. The priority is getting the next meal, getting sanitation, getting water, getting the shelter that individuals need around the world. Inclusion. I just I, it's the fact that that statement is made with no real evidence. It's more there's a sort of silent applause in the background that when we include everyone, we can overcome poverty. Uh, you question it, you look into it and you think, well, how? How does that all fit together? It doesn't come with any empirical evidence or I, I've yet to see it. I mean, statements like that, as with the alpaca tweet that I read at the start of this podcast, reads me like the productions of a AI language model where it sort of knows how to put words together. But as to whether there's any actual conscious thinking going on uh, in the minds of people who are putting out the, this sort of HR gibberish, um, I just don't know. And the, the dimension that struck me as well was they seem not just concerned with actual poverty, but also with a kind of spiritual poverty, um, as if people who don't accept these precepts um, are spiritually impoverished. And I, I've just been reading, uh, I've almost mm. finished it, a very interesting book about the voyage of the HMS Beagle. And so it's the it's the account of uh, the ship's captain, Captain Fitzroy, and Darwin's diary interspersed with each other. So you you follow their voyage as they wrote about it at the time. And one of the, the sort of subplots of their voyage um, was returning a, a small group of native South Americans to Tierra del Fuego, um, who had spent, I think, three years or thereabouts being educated uh, in England um, and being converted to Christianity with the hope that they would then return to their homeland um, mm. and improve the spiritual poverty of their people. And it, it seems to me that the Oxfam is doing exactly what the Church Mission Society or whatever was was doing in in the 19th century, where it's it's taking a group of poorer people, saying not only are they poor materially, but they're spiritually poor, and their whole worldview and their their outlook and their philosophy needs to be completely overhauled, whether they like it or not. And so Oxfam, in condemning this imperialism, is behaving in an imperial way because it's saying if you don't agree with what American sociologists think in California, then you're hopelessly backward. It's proselytizing yeah. in exactly the same way, except the message isn't quite as compelling, I don't think. Uh, and is like, uh, I suspect it won't land very well where priorities are a little bit different. But that's a really interesting point and comes back to the idea uh, that we spoke about last week about the new religion, the new heresy. Yeah. All of these religious words are, are there in this new DEI language. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think the parallel will come, you know, comes back to us again and again. All of that said, we do, of course, want to be very inclusive of our audience. Uh, and we've been delighted by the reaction to our first episode. And uh, we understand that we have listeners uh, in Sweden, Poland, uh, Gambia, and as far afield as Japan. Um, so thank yeah. you for listening.
Indeed, and apologies that we're not speaking in Swedish, Japanese or Polish because we're speaking a colonizing language of English. But we do want to talk uh, a little bit as well in this episode about our plans for this podcast. It's episode two. We are, were very pleased with episode one. And there really is, we were talking about our plans, there really is uh, so much material that we can cover, so many news items to do with free speech that come in. And so we will be inviting other members of the Free Speech Union. We are, we are now 16 people uh, and we don't want it just to be Ben and me talking every week. I'm sure that everyone will get bored of that. There are other voices and other people uh, doing very interesting things around the Free Speech Union and bring in some special guests as well. Um, one other thing I was going to say is that we would like to hear from our listeners. So if what we're talking about raises questions or uh, concerns or things you'd like us to investigate and talk about on the podcast, do write into us. Um, our, the, the, the email address is info at freespeechunion.org. That's info at freespeechunion.org. Uh, that's on our website as well. So uh, we would love to hear uh, what, what you would like us to uh, look through and, and talk about uh, in this podcast. One of the things we want to achieve in this podcast as well is not merely to uh, comment on the free speech culture wars, but to tell you what we're doing at the Free Speech Union to win, what we're actually doing to help our members to promote free speech more widely. And so whether it was the success uh, fighting back against non-crime hate incidents last week or our report this week uh, exposing the uh, state of EDI training and the dearth of free speech training in police forces in England and Wales this week, we want to show what action we're taking um, and how we can turn the pretty bleak picture we currently have around. And it's a, it's a bit of a slog. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy. It takes the work uh, of, as Tom said at the moment, 16 staff that the Free Speech Union now has and of our 11,000 members. Um, but we do want to give a more positive spin on things when we can and show uh, exactly how we're fighting to improve things with free speech in Britain. And in fact, this week, there's also, isn't there, Ben, there's a uh... There's a case that is pretty typical for us or pretty typical, particularly for, for your area of work as a case manager, which is the case of current Karen Sunderland. She uh, was a Conservative Party uh, candidate and she was um, uh, then an employee. She, she, she left she left politics and became an employee in the private sector. And what happened is that she actually some offence archaeologists went back and looked at some of the tweets she'd made while she was working in politics. And she had been uh, suspended from the Conservative Party for some of the topics she'd covered and, and some of the things she'd said uh, around Islam. Uh, and But what these offence archaeologists did was effectively it's this unforgiving nature of cancel culture. They went back and although she was in a new a new world, a new job in the private sector, they, they pulled all of these things out. And as a result of that, she lost her job. And she came and asked for help from us. And we went into to fight for her. And we have already uh, helped with some initial legal work. Uh, and um, we believe that there are two issues at stake. First of all, that conservative views themselves should be protected. Uh, and uh, we know that 
certain political views, such as I think it's social democratic views, there is case precedent law that says those are protected. But conservative views don't have the same protection or don't seem to have the same protection. So this will be a good case uh, for, for, for testing that out. And the second is belief in freedom of speech itself, uh, which this case will also test to see whether that's protected under the 2010 Equality Act. So we we have spent um, a, a fair amount of money already just to, to look at uh, some initial arguments that we will make uh, and, and to see whether it should go to court or not. And then we started a crowdfunder. And thank you to everyone, because I'm sure some of our listeners will have contributed to that crowdfunder. We've reached our £20,000 stretch target, which is great. And that means we can go to the next stage then there's a four day trial starting. I think it's starting very soon on the 28th of March. So that's the a, a, a sort of case that we look at. Again, someone who's just working quietly in the private sector and gets caught out by these offence archaeologists. But that's a that's a pretty typical case for us, isn't it, Ben? It is. And it's an interesting opportunity as well for us to to try and expand the protection that the Equality Act affords uh, for uh, religious and philosophical beliefs. Mm. Um and that really is is the main legal mechanism that exists at the moment uh, in which on a case by case basis, we can argue that the beliefs of our members and members of the public are worthy of uh, respect and protection under the law. And it is a very typical case uh, for us. Um, and each week we hear from something like 20 people with with cases from the private public sectors, from universities, from charities, from schools, the NHS, from all over the place. So it's not just um, the academic university no platforming cases that, that often take headlines, although we do have a fair few of those, it must be said. Um, but it's from all sectors of society and it's people from all walks of life, from students to bus drivers, uh, nurses, teachers, physicists, mm. whoever. I, it's a huge, huge variety of people. So in that sense, it's not really a typical uh, case. But what is typical and common to to all of them uh, is that they have said something sometimes online, sometimes in the staff room or in an email or whatever. Um, and they've then been reprimanded, investigated, suspended, punished, and in the worst cases, dismissed. Mm. Um, or else they're, they're coping, they're still in work and they're coping with a very hostile environment because they're being targeted because they, they for instance, don't believe that you can change your your gender mm. uh, and are contending with a really difficult workplace scenario. Um, and these situations escalate so quickly. I have to say, Ben, that's something that struck me. I, I've worked with the FSU. How long have you been with the FSU? Uh, 18 coming months? Up to, uh, coming up to two years now. Coming up to two years. Yeah. I'm, I'm up to a year now and and what i've noticed looking at the cases is how quickly they escalate so yeah. often people do not always know where the complaints may have come they they often they may have a suspicion but there's not a lot of information given to them about where the complaint came from yet suddenly not only are they being told or oh, you're being investigated but often they they've been suspended the next day or they've been dismissed the next day and so they 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 really have gone from a normal day at work to I'm I'm not working the next day and and as they escalate they escalate very quickly of course that has a huge effect on them um, uh, mentally as well I think that a lot of people suffer quite a lot people quite robust people as well yeah. suddenly discover they're kind of broken by what's happened and by how quickly it's happened now 
Most of our cases, for obvious reasons, remain confidential. Uh, but one of the things I've been able to do over the, the year since I joined is start to put a little bit more uh, structure around how we think about the cases and how we, we, we block them together, how we look at our data. Such, it's such a valuable database, especially in an environment where people are saying cancel culture does not exist. We're still hearing that. We're still hearing people say, well, prove it. Well, now the Free Speech Union has a database that proves beyond doubt that cancel culture is ruining lives. Uh, we have 2000 people that we've helped since the beginning of February 2020. Uh, and, and, and those are people who have lost jobs or or even we've talked a lot about people in jobs and, and those situations. But of course, there are also people who are visited by the state. Uh, yeah. Interestingly, there was a whole new type of case that arose in September last last year, which we hadn't even contemplated, which was because of our own PayPal incident. Uh, we've now introduced financial exclusion as a type of, of case. So when, uh, Ben, you go on to, to the news to talk about the Free Speech Union or when Toby uh, puts something in writing or goes on to, to, to a news program, we can now take the case data and equip uh, the Free Speech Union to say, this is how much we've seen. This is a reality. These are the number of universities that have shut down their students or shut down their academics. And it's a very valuable, very compelling uh, set of data. Um, so that is, that's been another one of the things that we have done uh, at the Free Speech Union on the case side. And I think what's so useful about that data is it shows that this debate about cancel culture and the erosion of free speech. This isn't just a story about Jeremy Clarkson or J.K. Rowling or last weekend Gary Lineker. Um, it, it's not actually by and large a story about celebrities, well-known public figures at all. It's a story about what's happening to the ordinary people that that we've just described and talked about and the, the 2,000 or more cases that, that we've now been involved in attest to that. Mm. Um, one of the things that I, that I find um, so I'm the deputy director of our case team. So I spend a lot of my time speaking to members who are in these really awful, very stressful situations. And once they've got off their chest what what they are facing, almost always the thing they want to talk about is where has this come from? What is driving this through every institution in British life? How has it happened? How have the police and the universities and private business and big corporations, how have they all been captured? So swiftly and what what is the, the what is the driving force behind this i don't know if you've seen this tom there's been this sort of discussion on twitter over the last i think the last few days the last week or so um about how you define woke and there is this phenomenon where i think it's seen as quite high status to to feign ignorance or to say uh that th this this whole mm. idea that there is such a thing as woke ideology is a confection uh, and to claim that there's in fact nothing new about it that things have always been like this and that there's no reason they should be different so it's a very strange defense mechanism and it's also one that's quite hard to fight back against um mm. I how, how would you define woke tom hmm. Do you have a, would you it, like to offer a suggestion because this is this is a question that's been that's been stumping people a little bit but we all know it when we see it don't we we do i i i think it's uh it's an extremely difficult 
word to to succinctly define. I, I think it started out as political correctness in many ways, which uh, wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It was, you know, in, at its best, it's it's about being polite to people, give, making people feel involved and included. And and we kind of knew there was that old phrase in the 90s. This is political correctness got gone mad. It started to sort of evolve in in into. Um, something people were a bit more 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 pushing against but what seems to have happened with woke is it's it's really um become a codified form of that political correctness so there are those that we talk about diversity equity and inclusion these are now being written down these ideas and these themes and these ways of speaking and thou shalt follow the code and yes. once thou shalt get into terrible trouble if you don't follow the code and therefore sort of opposition again i think this is a character of woke it doesn't broach any opposition and, and classic liberal uh, ideas classic liberal ways of thinking in my view are, are all about um his his idea a someone comes in with idea b they conflict and they have an argument in the public square but what you don't do is you don't have idea person from idea from a trying to shut down the person from idea but you might mock them. You might you might you might show their argument is ridiculous, but you don't sort of sit on them uh, and chase them out of the square. And that, I think, again, is a is a factor, a feature of woke. It's, it's quite anti liberal in that sense. Uh, and, you know, when you're not there because uh, it's codified, it's written down. And so people say, oh, that's in the code and you've, you've, you've broken it. And I think that's the crucial point. That's what's changed because the free speech union is very frequently defending people who are on the left of politics. Um, mm. Gender critical feminists being just one, albeit a very significant group of people we've defended who who tend to be on the left. Um, and so the issue, as you've said, is is not it's not that you have very progressive or left wing um, or socialist political views. It's the the imposition of those views across society and the silencing and punishing of dissenters. I always think it's like the invasion of the body snatchers. Did you ever see ah. that? I think it was the classic film was it in the 50s or 60s and there was a there was a remake in the 80s um that was quite good actually with uh, with Donald Sutherland that I I watched I think last year. Um and you see people you think you know being packaged off into their workplace or their university and they come out sort of stripped of their personalities and and very narrowly conforming to this strange new presence that is making its tentacles known across society so that's what i always think of i like that i like that a lot and i think i i think i um saw that happen i guess it was around 2016 and 2017 as you say people i thought i knew um saying to me that they thought they knew me Yes, <laughs> they were surprised that I had, you know, views of 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 on certain issues that were over in that direction, and suddenly I was anathema to them. Um, and fortunately, I never I never had many friends anyway, Ben. But you know, I I, I imagine I I think I, had I had friends, I would have lost a few as a result of having the wrong views. Um, do you think we have any woke views ourselves? Tom, I, th I think I think you've got lots of friends, and I'm sure you won't. Th this is the interesting thing. I, I don't think you'd lose friends on 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 sort of in conservative circles or whatever if you admitted to having a view about something that was left wing. I, mm. I find it quite hard to see how that would would lead to the breakdown of a friendship. Whereas the reverse, I think, is 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 not true. Um, 
But I, mm. yes, I, I, I do, I do have, uh, I do have at least one woke opinion. I, I suppose you could say, um, which is that. Don't worry, uh, no one's listening. Yeah, no one's listening. <laughs> it's just but, us. Uh, people in Gambia are listening. In Japan, Sweden. Uh, that's true. Place. I know. I know. <laughs> so this is this is go, this is going all over the world, which I, I'd um, no no uh, no aspiration in that direction whatsoever. But there we are. But no, I, so I do have a slightly work view. And I I do happen to be a vegetarian, which growing up in the 1990s was very unusual still. Mm. Um, but now it's once again become very unusual because so many young people are vegans. So I have mm. been uh, outflanked somewhat. So I'm I'm worried that in later life I will be cancelled and my statues, if I have any, toppled um, mm. for eating butter or drinking milk. Um, and I think this this is something I often think, um, and it shows the problem of living in a society whose social and philosophical views change so rapidly, uh, and the sort of the future shocks of social media and now AI and technology and all the rest of it. Um, mm. And today's normal behaviour is is tomorrow's mortal sin. Um, and so I, I, I do, and, and this is what people, we, we were just talking about the, 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 the thousands of cases of individuals we've helped. Um, this is what so many of them have been caught out by in mm. that they've been in their job sometimes in the same job or the same organisation for decades. Um, and then they find that actually all of the rules have changed. And Dan Hitchens called this the thing that swallowed Britain, which I think uh, is also an apt summary of it. What about you, Tom? Do you have any do you have any woke views? I did ask a friend, uh, do you think I'm woke? And he laughed in my face. Uh, my one friend, <laughs> See, by the way. You do ben. have a friend. You do have a friend. <laughs> um I think the, a lot of the the, the the sort of the woke ideas they they're very much like the oxygen around us, the air we breathe. Um, you know, the moment we open the door in the morning, I think I think the the woke outlook and philosophy is around us everywhere we go in so many different ways that we don't see how it's affecting us, and I probably don't see how it's affecting. I think it's like the frog in the pan. Yes. That poor frog. I think you know, like Schrodinger's cat. That's that poor cat. Uh, the, the frog in the pan slowly. Um, the water gets warmer and warmer and warmer and, and the frog doesn't jump out because it doesn't realise. I would love to take a time machine and jump back to 1985 and listen into a conversation or a discussion that I might have been having with friends or family at that time. I'm sure I would be clutching my pearls, going back to another <laughs> idea you mentioned, clutching my pearls that I, I was thinking that or saying that so conditioned I had probably now already become to, to modern sensibilities. You, you'd uh, have been so. saying un-alpaca-like things, Tom. Is that right? I wouldn't have been recognising how many flavours of alpaca are. See, I'm not a vegetarian. I'd probably eat the alpaca. Um, anyhow, speaking of social mores, we should talk about the next topic, um, Ben. Yes. Th so th this is this is this combined changing social uh, mores and and technological progress in inverted commas, which of course is the question of ebooks that we talked about last week and, and mm. publishers automatically updating them. And I did see that uh, Amazon have, have essentially passed the buck on this, and they said, well, we just provide the facility for for publishers or individual authors, indeed, to to publish their books. Um, and if those texts are then revised. That's a matter for the publisher. But interestingly, uh, I saw an Amazon official told Fox News that, and I quote, customers who purchase Kindle books can enable or disable having a book automatically updated by visiting automatic book updates on the preferences tab. Now, I don't have a Kindle, um, but if you do try this, let us know if it works. Because mm. um, I think that might be a good way of saving your classic texts from going on to the digital bonfire. So that was quite yeah. heartening. 
Well, I think I think you're right, Ben. I mean, it would be great um, to hear whether that works, because what I think that's potentially in conflict with is this idea that you only lease your book. So the 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 owner, the freeholder, if you will, of the book of the ebook could change it. But yeah, if you if you kind of cut that connection, cut that umbilical cord between Amazon and your your personal Kindle, um, that would be that'd be interesting to hear whether that works. Now, we do have um, an interesting event coming up on uh, misinformation and disinformation. Yeah, that's coming up actually very soon on the 27th of March. Uh, I do believe the in-person tickets have now sold out, but you can still, if you're an FSU member, get a ticket to join on Zoom. The panel includes Peter Hitchens, Silky Carlo, Tamandra Harkness, and our General Secretary, Toby Young, and it's entitled Disinformation, Misinformation, and the freedom to dissent. That is quite relevant, I think, to some of the other things that have happened this week, because we've seen a few things happen around misinformation and disinformation. For example, just there's actually quite a few things we could talk about here. So Andrew Bridgen's speech in the House of Commons was taken down by YouTube this week uh, because he was talking about his views on, on the COVID vaccines. And in the House of Commons, we saw a few of the MPs sort of leave the chamber and then that clip was put on YouTube of him speaking. It was taken down by YouTube. Now, it has since been restored, uh, but it does have echoes, doesn't it, of other instances of this, Ben, I think. You, you're aware of, I think, yes. David Davis, is that right? Yes, that's right. And I, I think it's, in a way, it's particularly alarming when it happens to a member of parliament. So David Davis had a, mm. a video taken down. He wasn't talking in his his speech. And I think this was two years ago. I think it was in uh, 2021. He'd been opposing uh, the concept of vaccine passports. So he'd not been, as I understand it, suggesting that the vaccine was was dangerous. Uh, he, he'd simply been saying that vaccine passports were illiberal. Um, and nonetheless, his uh, his speech was taken down also by YouTube and eventually restored. Um, and so regardless of the content of what Andrew Bridgen is saying, um, it, it's very disturbing that it can happen to a member of parliament because it can happen if it can happen to an MP. Um, it's very difficult to see what protection ordinary people will have if one of us says something that mm. a YouTube algorithm or uh, or member of staff doesn't particularly like. And this also happened to uh, Navara Media, whose channel was was briefly taken down and, and likewise restored. And it's quite, even, even when that, even when that happens, it's restored very quickly. It's terribly unnerving, as we yeah. had with with PayPal, that all of the digital infrastructure that all of our lives are now built on can just be yanked from under your feet. Um, and you've effectively got no right of appeal, certainly not yeah. to a neutral third party. You can go through the internal appeal process. Good luck to you. Um, mm. But but you can't go you can't go to a neutral party to to have such a thing uh, such a situation arbitrated and unfortunately the online safety bill is likely to make this so much worse uh, if and when it becomes law yeah that's a big worry isn't it this is happening right now uh, the online safety bill is effectively going to make these tech companies even more cautious uh, yeah. about what they're going to allow to stay up and what they're going to take down uh, so that is a huge worry and something that we've talked about before as well. Um, another another element here, of course, is the Twitter files. The uh, uh, the, the yes. latest release on that, essentially, I think it's been described how Twitter was has been described as censorship, the censorship industrial complex, which yes. would mean it's a factory for censorship. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, in, in, indeed. And the, the the particular revelation that um, has made headlines in, in this latest release has been censorship of, and I quote, true content which might promote vaccine hesitancy. So again, whatever you think of COVID vaccines or vaccine passports or any of the debates around COVID that we've been grappling with for the last three years, um, it's deeply unnerving from a free speech perspective that um, social media companies uh, and Twitter, in, the, in this case, under its old management, were collaborating with the the enforcement of one particular view and removing content, it seems, very indiscriminately uh, of people who didn't take that that line. Yeah, and and the worry there, uh, Ben, of course, is true content. So we yeah. we and the phrase. And obviously, I, we're not we're not going to get into all the debates around COVID-19 and such like. But, you know, the phrase follow the science was very much bandied around, was very much um, something that, that, that we were told was happening. And yet true content uh, was was being was being sort of pushed off Twitter. So there are all sorts of, you, you know, we can join the dots there as to what was really going on in, in all sorts of ways. Um, but we won't get in. We won't get into <laughs> The debate around kind of COVID-19 and, and the vaccines, because that's not that's not the point. It's it's more it's more that true content that, that might do something was being pushed off the platform. The other major item in our legislative intro is, of course, the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill. And this is a piece of legislation that the Free Speech Union has been campaigning for for a very long time to try and combat uh, the crisis of no platforming and the crisis of free speech generally on university campuses. So there is a crucial vote taking place uh, on Tuesday the 21st of this week. So by the time you're listening to this, that vote may already have happened. And essentially there's been a huge um, uh, sort of game of ping pong going on um, in Parliament over a statutory tort. So um, in layman's terms, there has been uh, an element within the House of Lords that have been trying to water down the legislation uh, to make the, the the sort of the sanctions for universities who don't uphold and protect free speech uh, much less severe and crucially uh, to make it much harder for a student or, or visiting guest speaker and so on to uh, access any kind of redress if their right to freedom of speech is infringed. Um, so there is another vote on that particular issue this week. Um, and it is topical once again, because we have seen uh, yet another case of no platforming, this time at Royal Holloway with Baroness Claire Fox. Um, and she'd been invited to speak about her career uh, by the university's debating society. Uh, they were then put under huge pressure uh, by student union officers who alleged completely baselessly that, that Baroness Fox was transphobic to cancel the event and to rescind the invitation. So under this huge pressure, they felt they had no choice but to do that. And we've written to Royal Holloway uh, on behalf of Baroness Fox and the uh, student organisers who were who very much wanted this event to go ahead and, and just felt unable um, to make it happen. Um, and this shows, as I've said, the week that this vote is taking place, a member of the House of Lords can stand up and say to the, to the sort of the university faction who are downplaying all of this and say, well, it is a real problem. It's just happened to me. Yeah, it's happened to lots of people. That's extremely important, isn't it, Ben? The fact that, that it's going that the very piece of legislation that's going through the House of Lords, someone can stand up and say, 
this is an issue for me. And, and um, you know, obviously, we very much wish that hadn't happened to Baroness Fox. Um, but in terms of getting the message across for this uh, vote tomorrow, I think uh, there's probably no no better way of getting the message very clearly out there. Well, you'd hope so. But Tom, as you, as you were saying before, uh, a little earlier on, there is still this this sort of defence mechanism of 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 some people on the left saying, well, cancel culture is is infected. Mm. There's no real evidence of this. And of course, as we've talked about in this episode, we know very differently because we have a huge amount of data. We, we they can follow the evidence. It's all yeah. abundantly clear that there is a huge problem, not only with the type of situation that that Claire Fox has just faced, um, but with people in all sorts of other situations, as we've described, who've who've fallen foul of of the the speech codes that predominate. And just going back very quickly to the discussion we had um, earlier about how to define woke, mm. I, I did find this description, this definition from Professor Matt Goodwin. I think this just about captures it. I'd be interested to hear what you think about this. So he defines it as a pseudo-religious belief system which is organised around the sacralization of racial, sexual and gender minorities and which prioritises subjectivity and lived experience over objectivity and empirical evidence. I think that hits the nail on the head, doesn't it? Snappy. Uh, I <laughs> There are a lot of big words in there that could be unpacked, I think, uh, Ben. But essentially, what I, what I notice when uh, I read that definition is how much uh, religious terminology there, are, there, there is. You know, there's liturgy in there. Uh, there's uh, working it out in your life that's in there. Uh, and I suspect by implication, there is heresy as well, very much embedded in that definition. So, yeah, I, I like it, particularly that last bit about um, empirical evidence that that we, we said right at the beginning with Oxfam that empirical evidence, I, I, that's what we need. If someone's going to make a statement like once we're all included, poverty will end. Uh, if we're going to make a statement like that and mean it and send it out around the world as a sort of beacon well, there's no. Where's the empirical evidence for that being the key to ending poverty? Um, so I like that definition a lot. I think it, it's fair to say we, we'd rather the the lived experience of the genderbred person was downplayed in police training, and there was perhaps a little <laughs> bit more rigor and empirical evidence and focus on what they're actually supposed to be doing. And it's um, definitely genderbred. <laughs> I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. And we've paid for it. We've paid for it to add insult to injury um well i think that probably brings us to the end i dare say there'll be plenty of free speech news this time next week yeah thanks ben and uh thank you for listening to everyone at home and do check us out at freespeechunion.org goodbye